This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. You're listening to Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Christian Tervish. Welcome back from the break. I'm Christian Tevish. This is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio on Series XM. Today we're talking about the gaming industry. In the first half of the show, I talked to Elaine Chase, Vice President of Esports for Wizards of the Coast. If you missed the first half of the show, you can go on workoftomorrow.com to get access to this show as well as all our previous episodes. At this point, it's my big pleasure to introduce my second guest, Gio Hunt, Executive Vice President and Executive Producer at Blizzard Entertainment, the company that produces World of Warcraft. Welcome, Gio. Hello there, how are you? Hey Gio, you are the executive producer of one of the most played games in the world. How many hours per week do you play yourself? Oh, me, myself? Oh, <laughs> a lot. Maybe too much. My wife would 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 uh, would be pretty upset if I was telling pu- people publicly how much I play. Oh, but, I know um, that pleasure. It's, it's, <laughs> it's staying between you and me. Give me the day. Uh, you know, probably 15 to 20 hours a week of playing video games still, even at my age. How, how about the next generation in your family? Uh, my son and my daughter also both play video games a lot. My son's off at of college right now. He's not supposed to be playing a lot of video games, but my guess is he's still probably playing 10 to 15 hours a week himself. Exactly. Now during exam time is a good way to calm down. Uh, talk about how Blizzard's uh, games started and, and how they have evolved over the past years. I'm sorry, say again the question? Uh, t- talk about how Blizzard's uh, game overall, the, your, your company has started and how they have evolved over the, the past years. Sure. So Blizzard Entertainment's been around quite a long time. The company was founded in 1991 and was initially uh, working on building games uh, based in the IP of other companies and doing ports of games for other companies, and then over time started to do its own games. Uh, It really came into its own as a company in the mid to late 90s um, with games like StarCraft uh, and WarCraft. Uh, and then I think the company is probably most known for the game World of Warcraft, which we initially launched in late 2004. Um, but the company also, and really that was the moment at which the company and that game became more of a household name. Um, but the company is also responsible for creating such great worlds as Diablo and Overwatch and Hearthstone. We have a whole number of great intellectual properties in our portfolio now and uh, multiple games in all of those franchises as well. So the company started real small and over the last 27, now almost 28 years, has really grown into being you know, one of the leading uh, developers and publishers of video games for PCs consoles and mobile devices. Now World of Warcraft alone has many millions uh, of sub- subscribers and players. Can you can you share with us some statistics of uh, either total p- number of players or sessions or however you want to measure engagement with the with the market? Yeah, the wonderful thing about World of Warcraft is it's still you know, going strong after being launched in 2004, here we are at the end of 2018. So for 14 years, this game has been attracting many millions of players playing every month, uh, connecting with one another from all around the world. Um, So it's truly a, a phenom, honestly, in the video game industry to have a game 
that has remained so vibrant and so strong for 14 years running now. Um, I still play World of Warcraft myself for 14 straight years now um, and play almost every week. So it's a really great community of players from all over the world um, who you know are able to congregate online and just live out a great and exciting adventure um, and do that on an ongoing basis. World of Warcraft's going strong and will be around for a long time to come. I, I somewhere came across this statistic that if the World of Warcraft community would, instead of playing the game, invest into Wikipedia article writing, they would write to Wikipedia like every two weeks or so. Have you have you heard that story? I haven't heard that statistic, but uh, based upon how many people we have playing World of Warcraft and how committed they are uh, to helping to create the environment, it wouldn't surprise me. But I <laughs> I can't attest to that statistic because I've never heard it before. How does how does the playing time, the engagement, the fun, the the action, the adventures, how does it translate into financial performance for your business? So um, with respect to the World of Warcraft business, it's a subscription model. Um, so our players pay us on a monthly basis in order to play that game. Um, but we have other games that are have different business models as well. So, for example, our game that's called Hearthstone is a free-to-play model where anybody can uh, pick up that game and play for free. Um, and then if they'd like, if they want to, they can buy card packs. It's a card-based game. Um, they can buy card packs, but it's completely optional. I think one of the interesting things that we're seeing in the industry as a whole is a variety of different business models um, that are being adopted by different publishers. and uh, we here at Blizzard actually use a lot of those different business models ourselves in our different titles to enable people um, to get involved in games in different ways. So in some cases, you have to pay an upfront license to pay a game. In some cases, games are free, and then you can just um, play them and decide uh, to buy things in the game if you'd like to. It's a very interesting time in the industry when all of these business models are coexisting with one another. Help us uh, think through that a little bit more, because I, I think there are probably few people or few kind of executives in the world who have thought about this so deeply as, as you have, because as you say, within one company, you have all these different business models of pay per month, pay per minute, in-app purchases. So tell us a little bit, like, let's start maybe with a different kind of uh, revenue models, and then explain to us how you decided which model goes to which game. Well, really, when we're thinking about the game um, and the way Blizzard approaches making games generally is we don't even usually worry about the business model at all in the beginning. You know, our goal is to create great gaming experiences for our community, to make the games as fun as they can be, to make the games as engaging as they can be, and just to create a great form of entertainment for our players. That's absolutely job number one for us, and it's the thing that drives us, and it's the thing that we're focused on 100% when we're building a game. As we build out the game, you know, we, we, are, we do have to figure out a way to also make some money off of it in order to be able to continue making these great games. Uh, and as we do that, we normally decide upon a business model that work, just works well for the game um, so that uh, players will feel very comfortable uh, with, uh, with having to pay something uh, in order to play the game. Or as I mentioned earlier, in some cases with our games, not even having to pay at all if they don't want to. So the business model really um, follows from what's the nature of the gameplay and what would be the, the best business model to enhance that gameplay and make it the best gaming experience that we can create. So how about uh, this kind of, uh, is, it, is it true that some, some regions, you, uh, like China, is more like a play-per-minute history? 
Well, the you know, gaming in China has actually evolved a little bit differently from the rest of the world. Um, most games in China are very free to play, meaning that there's uh, no charge at all to initially play the game. So unlike games in the West, where still most games have an upfront license fee, most games in China don't. Um, they're the free to play model, a lot like we have on, on mobile devices here in the Western world also. Um, but within China, there's a lot of items that you buy inside of games. So um, most of the games in China have in-app purchasing mm -hmm. of either cosmetic items or items that actually make you a more powerful player inside of the game. Um, it's uh, kind of very commonplace in China to be able to buy uh, items inside of games that make you a better player. Um, we try to avoid that in our games because we like our games to be um, you know, more even, uh, even keeled for all players. Um, but that's not always the case in, in most China, in most games that are developed inside of China. Tell us a little bit more about this kind of making the games even. I find, and again, uh, my, my gaming experience online is primarily limited to uh, FIFA, PlayStation, and uh, Spiral the Dragon, which was actually just a console game. And so pardon my ignorance there, but I feel with any game design, you have to find somehow find the sweet spot that it is the game is fun and engaging even for the first time user. Uh, but it still needs to be juicy for the person who is a real expert. And I, again, I think if, if I think about the electronic arts game FIFA, they've done this really well where you can have, even as a beginner, moments of, 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 of feelings of accomplishment, um, but you still get beaten by somebody who is better. So how do you personalize that kind of sense of mastery, that sense of accomplishment uh, to the individual player who might be at very different stages in their playing career? That's a really good question, and it is one of the things that makes really great game development uh, challenging. We like to think and we uh, endeavor always with our games to make them, we sometimes call it as easy to play and difficult to master. Um, the idea is just that what we're striving for is just what you described, that for the new player, they can come into the game and the play balance of the game and uh, the initial several hours of their play are very easy. Um, we want players to actually have a very rewarding and enriching experience right from the beginning. But the game can't stay that way or else folks will get tired of it pretty quickly. Uh, and so all of our games, we, with all of our games, we endeavor to also uh, uh, create a quite a, you know, an inclining curve of difficulty so that as you get further and further into the game, it becomes more and more challenging and more and more difficult to master. Um, but it's actually one of the things that's one of the more challenging things about creating a really good game is because you want a balance of both. With games where people are playing against one another, one of the things that we can do um, to enable that is how we do the matchmaking mm -hmm. as between players so that if you're new to a game, um, you know, we match you up or do our best to match you up against other new players so that all the newer players are kind of learning together. And then over time, as you spend more time in a game and you become more experienced and more expert in how to play that game, our matchmaking systems tend to match you up with, uh, with other players who are similar, have a similar level of experience. And so you're all coming up that learning curve together. Um, we do our best to do that, but, it, but again, it is one of the more challenging things about modern game design is to, to make them both easy and fun in the beginning and challenging uh, and in an encouraging way over the, over the long term as well. So somewhere in your database for a user ID for a particular gamer, there is some form of skill level and a set of like attributes describing his or her competence. 
Do you see these kind of match to different market segments in terms of purchase behavior or playing behavior? Well, we definitely do are tracking how players are doing in our game over over time, again, because we do want to um, really make sure that we're able to provide them a great experience on an ongoing basis. Um, you know, the, the, the reality is in terms of how it matches against other demographics or other um, categories of players, um, it really varies a great deal. Um, the wonderful thing about gaming is, um, you know, in the gaming industry generally is, it's really something for people of all ages and all backgrounds. And so there's not really a great correlation between, you know, really proficient, uh, somebody who's really proficient at video games and any particular demogra demographic category. We see great gamers coming from every walks of life. It's a really neat thing. Every age, every, you know, region, uh, every nationality, everybody plays games. Can you, in marketing, there's this term, the lifetime value of a customer that we could kind of quantify as basically the future revenue, the future profit that comes out of a customer account going forward to the rest of that life cycle of the account. Can you, can you predict for a particular gamer based on their gaming behavior in the past, their skills, whether that is somebody who's going to be around for a while or do you sometimes say like, whoops, where is Christian? I mean, we thought he was super engaged <laughs> and now he's gone. Well, what we see with games, and especially with core gamers who play the types of games that we create, is they do play a lot of different video games, right? Um, both ours and the games of other uh, great video game publishers. So it's very commonplace for for gamers to um, you know to play a lot of different games. Um, there's, I wouldn't say that there's a you know a direct category of correlation against lifetime value. Probably the most um, obvious thing um, is that if you play a lot of games, in all likelihood you're going to continue to play a lot of games. And even if maybe uh, you lapse or go away and play somebody else's game, we know that over time you're probably going to come back and play one of our games too. Um, gamers are gamers. This is a very important part of their um, you know, their life and their, uh, their lifestyle. And so we know that when we have players who play our games, and, and there's a very high likelihood that they're going to continue to play our games and other games uh, and the f games that we release into the future. Um, the, more, the more people play, the, the more people play. So uh, if, if I would be your executive vice president of finance, what, what type of metrics would I be kind of tracking to see whether we're dealing with a healthy game community and a healthy portfolio of games, or to what extent we might make currently revenue, but I I'm, I'm really should get nervous about revenues in a year or two years from now. What, what, what type of financial metrics do you track? Well, uh, we certainly do look at our overall player base and how it's growing over time, and we look at things, you know, in terms of how much revenue per player we're getting over time. I mean, there are, of course, you know, these traditional financial revenues we look at to measure the health of our game. But we don't just limit it to financial revenues and financial uh, uh, metrics to determine the health of our business. Because this is an entertainment business and we have a really robust community, and so more important to us, frankly, than tracking the dollars and cents is tracking the sentiment of our community mm -hmm. and being in touch with our community and making sure that we're continuing to provide them great gaming experiences and um, and we know that not through financial metrics, uh, but rather by engaging with our community all the time, our player community, and listening to them and um, and seeing how they're reacting to the games and the products that we produce. 
Um, it's more of a soft science than a hard science, honestly. But we know that if we continue to create great gaming experiences for our, for our players, um, that the business will follow from that, and the business will kind of take care of itself a little bit from that as long as we're continuing to create great uh, games and um, satisfy the needs of our players. Feel free to pass on the following question, but for World of Warcraft, uh, total game revenues last year were how much? Uh, yeah, that's I'm not, I'm not at liberty to disclose sure, that okay, at this okay. point. Sure, <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, but but uh, I like, so if you think about the obviously financial measures such as top-line revenue, as we think about uh, revenue per player, revenue per hour played, you're describing how these next level of uh, performance measures such as engagement uh, of the community, such as kind of the health of the community, those are really the leading indicators that will tell you whether revenues will come down three, four, five years from now, right? That they, they truly are. As long as we're creating great gaming experiences and our players are engaged and our players are feeling rewarded and happy um, and satisfied with our products, we know there's always going to be money and revenue and profitability that, that flows from that uh, ultimately. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tevish, and I'm chatting with Gio Hunt, who is the executive vice president and executive producer at Blizzard Entertainment, the company that produces, among other things, World of Warcraft. We've talked a lot about money uh, uh, since the title of the show is Work of Tomorrow. I would like to learn a little bit about how it feels like working for you, uh, uh, Gio. Can you give us a sense of how big of a team you have? Uh, so I have a team of about 400 folks right now. And those must be spread over like jobs such as art and design, uh, programming, customer support, and accounting. Or I mean, what's kind of the uh, rough rough breakdown of these kind of different jobs? Uh, well, actually, the, the the part of the company that I oversee is is uh, called BattleNet. It's our online gaming platform, and so we're the organization that produces the fundamental game platform upon which all of our games run. So my team is comprised of software engineers, program managers, architects, designers, the folks who are really involved in building our platform, our websites, our shop experiences, our mobile applications, less so building the games themselves, but building all of the software infrastructure upon which our games run. So the actual artist who sits there and kind of sketches out a new character or a new kind of a, a new landscape, that is a different part of the organization? That's a different part of the organization, yes. We have a very large game development organization with multiple different teams on it, a team basically working on each one of our games. And so inside of those teams, you'd have artists and designers and engineers and uh, production folks as well. What type of skills do you look for in a game developer? So in a game developer, there's actually, the term game developer actually encompasses a, a lot of different types of individuals also. Um, the core of a game is uh, called game design, and those folks are really just focused on the mechanics of the game themselves and on designing the gameplay, making the game fun. Um, they don't do the engineering or the art. They're just literally focused on what the game itself is, what the core game loop is. The other folks that are game developers are software engineers who are building both the front-end system, the, you know, the client software that runs on your computer, as well as the software that runs on the server that's serving that game. Uh, and then, of course, you have production folks who make sure that all of this stuff is getting done and, and uh, shipped on time. And you definitely have artists, as you mentioned as well, character artists, level artists, 
Uh, and then in addition to that, there's folks who work on the music and sound from a game, from the cinematics that appear in a game. Um, it's really a convergence of a lot of different technology and art forms all coming to one uh, in order to create a game. How much are you competing directly with the movie uh, industry? I mean, I saw some of the trailers of uh, World of Warcraft on YouTube, and oh my God, that's uh, almost a qu production quality of, uh, of The Hobbit, right? <laughs> well, we certainly do put a lot of time and effort and love into the cinematics that we create uh, that appear in our games and are used also to promote our games. Um, we're a big believer in that visual art form. I don't really think of us as competing with the movies. Um, people go to the movies for a lot of different reasons and I think play games for different reasons as well. It's all entertainment, of course. Um, we have had one of our franchises, the World of Warcraft franchise, the Warcraft franchise, made into a uh, major motion picture a couple of years ago. Um, and it may be something that we do again in the, in the future as well. So tell us a little bit about the role of technology and, and how that is changing. I mean, I remember playing my first uh, video games on an Apple II computer where the evil monster were like six green dots on a black screen and the, the sound card was like a little, you know, a little beepy or a little crunchy or however you want to call it. We're now, you know, have made dramatic advances where certainly the, the PC games, PC platforms, are uh, basically video quality, the, the network latency has improved to amazing levels. What is next? Uh, I, I just cannot, from any industry I've ever studied, I cannot imagine that we've reached the end of all times. So what is happening in the next five years, ten years, that we as, as gamers, as consumers should look forward to? Um, well, you're absolutely right. The technology underpinning games has evolved a lot in the you know last 20 years, frankly, in the last uh, 10 and 5 years for that matter. Um, it takes very large teams of people to build the types of games that we produce today. And I think one of the most interesting developments that we've seen um, from the time, you know, from the uh, time of the Apple II or whatever that you just mentioned, where most of the, of the gaming experience was just local on your personal computer, is the fact that today almost all the games that we produce and that most publishers uh, produce for that matter are games as a service. They are uh, games that are played both on your local PC um, or your local console, but a lot of the software and a lot of the engineering that's driving that gaming experience is online and being uh, provided to you through server software. And certainly a lot of our games are like that too. And I think moving to games as a service has allowed games and uh, game experiences to really be, you know, ongoing, ever-present, um, dynamic worlds. Uh, and that's been a really interesting development when you think about those games from time immemorial to, to games now. You know, it used to be that you'd buy a game, you'd play it for a couple weeks or maybe a month, and then you'd move on to the next thing. Um, and you wouldn't be able to play with anybody else. In the modern era, gaming is really all online, or mostly online at least, and so you get to play uh, with a lot of other people from around the world, and I think that's really changed and on an ongoing and, and persistent basis. And I think that's really changed the nature of gaming. Gaming has gone from a very solitary experience to a very, very social experience um, where you're playing with all these different people, and the communities around gaming then has also kind of really created so that that community the community of gamers playing a game exists in the game and also exists outside of the game 
there's so much of that gaming community that is online and different websites and forums and online communities and exchanging information about the game outside the game about how to play the game better. And I think that's all a great evolution that we've seen you know, over the last decade or so. As to where it goes into the future, wow, that's hard to predict. Um, you know, there's a lot of thought that um, gaming might um, uh, really get into the AR or VR space. Um, you know, alternative reality or virtual reality space. We do think that that's uh, definitely a vector that you could see gaming going in. I'm not sure over what time frame that might happen. Um, I think there was a lot of hype about VR a couple of years ago, and I think that's calmed down a little bit because there's a lot of technology challenges involved with that. But I definitely think that, you know, that is definitely an area that we could, um, you know, that, that where more uh, gaming and gaming experiences could be created. And I think we'll just see more and more online games also. And I think we'll also see, um, you know, the potential for more what I'll call user-generated gaming, uh, where a lot of the gaming experiences, a lot of the things that you encounter in games are actually created by end users and, and not all the work is being done by the developers and publishers. Um, but a good way to do that hasn't really been invented yet. Um, it's been something that everybody's been talking about for years, but hasn't happened yet. But it could happen um, you know, as these tools for creating assets and levels and characters inside of games become you know, more broadly accessible. You could see some of that happening too, but it's really hard to know. Says Gio Hunt of Blizzard Entertainment, the company that produces World of Warcraft. Thank you so much, Gio. We've reached the end thank of the you. show today. I'm Christian Tevish, and on behalf of all of us here at the Wharton School, thank you for listening. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 